is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is Daniel Sutherland, professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And he is here to talk to us about the philosophy of mathematics. Daniel Sutherland, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. One of the perennial questions in the philosophy of mathematics is, what is a number? Maybe we can just start there. Yeah. Well, that's a very good question. Numbers appear to be abstract objects, and by abstract object, philosophers mean objects that don't seem to occupy a spatial or a temporal location, and also a kind of thing that doesn't enter in causal relations with other things. And in fact, numbers are one of the prime candidates for abstract objects, should there be any. Now, various people have been quite puzzled about the role of abstract objects in general. Whether there are any, there are people who have been opposed to admitting that there are abstract objects and have tried to explain away cases of apparent abstract objects, and that's the case in philosophy of mathematics as well. Uh, One of the troubling things about allowing for abstract objects is that it's hard to see how they fit into our conception of the world as we understand it today, that is to say, through science, where we try to explain things through physical laws and causal interactions. And that has given a lot of people motivation to resist the idea of abstract objects altogether. Another more pressing problem within philosophy is to explain how it is that we could have knowledge of abstract objects and their properties if they really are abstract. If they don't occupy a spatial and temporal location, if they don't enter in causal relations, then how do we have knowledge of them? This issue has actually been tremendously formative to philosophy itself because it looks like typically the way you know something is to stand in some sort of causal relation to it. So the paradigm case here would be um, perceiving the things in the room that you're in right now light strikes an object, it reflects off of it, it impinges on your eye, it causes neurons to fire. That's a more detailed scientific picture that we have now than was uh, available at an earlier point of time. But still, the idea is that you enter in some sort of causal relation to an object, and that's what justifies your knowledge that, say, for example, there's a cup on the table right now. Now, if we're talking about an abstract object, it is, by definition, something that doesn't enter into causal relations. So how can you have knowledge of it? Plato and other rationalists thought that you have some sort of perception of things that are abstract, and described in perceptual metaphors our knowledge of the forms, which you may have heard about, and also numbers. These are ideal abstract objects that we don't enter into causal relations with, or at least no direct causal relations with. So that raises a puzzle. What 
Are you attributing to human beings a distinct mode of perception? And if so, how do you explain it? And that has been a big problem for those who believe that you have knowledge of abstract objects, is giving an account of the epistemology, that is to say, the theory of knowledge, giving a theory of knowledge of these abstract objects. How is it that you can know things about them? This problem has perplexed people so much that some have looked for alternative views about what numbers are. They have tried to locate numbers in the mind or perhaps in the physical world. One way to do this, and this is a, a simplified way of thinking about it, you might think that numbers are in the world in the sense that the number two is really summarizing or somehow an indirect way of thinking about two things, two things that you experience in the world. Um, that's to give it some sort of numbers, a concrete realization, and then what you know is something in the world. There are much more sophisticated versions of making numbers a part of the world that I won't get into. Another idea is to say that numbers are constructed by us. They're, in some sense, just in our minds. And there are different approaches in the philosophy of mathematics corresponding to the different attitudes about what a number is and theories about how we know numbers. So if I step back a bit to what I was saying at the beginning, some philosophers think that numbers are abstract objects, and those philosophers have a way of thinking about numbers that seems very natural. We think of the number three. We don't think of three things here, three things there. We think that there is the number three. And it also happens to be a way that most mathematicians seem to think about numbers, that they are objects. And it also fits very neatly with our theories of truth. I won't go into the details there. But there's a way in which if you just take numbers as abstract objects, it seems to follow from the way we talk about numbers that they're abstract objects. It fits with a very natural conception of them, and it fits with our theory of truth. But if you take that option, then you have to explain how we know these abstract objects. So you got your work then is going to be cut out in the epistemological side. Those who claim that numbers are really manifested in the world have an easier time explaining how you know numbers. Oh, you know numbers by seeing collections of two, and then maybe you abstract out an idea of two, and when you're talking about two plus three equals five, that's shorthand for groups of two put together with groups of three give you groups of five, something like that. But it makes the epistemology more tractable. The problem is, is giving an account of numbers that really fits the way we think about numbers, the way we talk about numbers, the way we theorize by number, about numbers, and a way that gives us a comprehensive theory of what numbers are. And that requires a lot of work. Plus, you have to, even in the epistemology, explain how you get from seeing two things to the number two. And that turns out not to be as easy as you might think. It looks like it's a quick step, but there's a big difference between having a collection of two, and talking about the number two and some complicated relations between them. Would you say just a little more about this? This seems like we would have the same issue with colors, for instance, uh, abstracting the color blue away from blue things. Mm -hmm. It seems like this would be a, a similar step we would have to make, uh, mm -hmm. but people don't seem particularly worried about making that step with colors. Why would we be worried about making that step with 
numbers? That's a very good question. So an answer to this actually pulls us into questions about the status of what it is that you abstract out and what you're talking about then. So some of the same issues may arise here. There's two issues here. One is abstraction, and then there's being an abstract object. Okay, So you can abstract. There's the abstraction process that might get you the idea of a number two, an abstraction that gets you the idea of the color blue. Then there's a further question, what those correspond to. Is the one representing an abstract object, the number two? And then what about the color blue? What is the status of the color blue whose representation you've abstracted from particular instances of blue? Is that something that exists independently of the things that it's instantiated in? So what we're seeing here is that the issues in philosophy of mathematics are closely tied to perennial issues in philosophy about how to think about universals and how to think about the process of abstraction and what the content of our thoughts are after we've engaged in a process of abstraction. So some of the same issues are on the table. I think in the case of mathematics, it's particularly problematic because the idea is that we seem to be talking about an abstract object, and that gives the problem more bite than it might otherwise have. But there are similar issues in both cases that would need to be addressed. And I'm glad you raised this because the problem of universals, this classic problem in philosophy, you have the same kinds of ways of dealing with it that you find in philosophy of mathematics. That is to say, some people will say there is the color blue. It exists independently of us, and abstraction allows us to get an idea that will allow us to refer to that. That's somebody who who takes the existence of blue apart from its instantiations quite seriously. Other philosophers might say that you have an abstraction that gets you a mental representation that doesn't correspond to anything in the world. It's just an idea. That corresponds to one of the ways of thinking about numbers. And other people will say, all you really have are the instantiations of blue and the word blue or the idea blue is just a way of talking about those instantiations. So there's an exact parallel to handling the problem in the case of color to the ways you handle it in the philosophy of mathematics. So that's a bit of background about one way to think about philosophy of mathematics. You get in a dilemma between giving the objects of mathematics the ontological status they seem to demand and answering the epistemological question of how we could have knowledge of them. So there's a dilemma here. And this dilemma was famously articulated by Paul Benassarif in an article. And one of the interesting things about that article is that with this understanding of the dilemma, the pull on the one hand toward giving a metaphysically robust interpretation of what a number is and the problem of explaining how we can have knowledge of it, gave him a way of reflecting on different schools of philosophy and mathematics that had arisen. And it looked like the different schools fell into these different camps, those who take numbers to be objectively real and independent abstract objects, those who take them to be creations of our mind, and those who think that they are in some way manifested in the world. So we've been contemplating three possible responses to the question, what is a number? The first answer says that numbers are abstract objects. They're not located in space and time, and they don't have the sort of causal influence 
on things that we perceive that things located in space and time seem to. The second answer to the question, what is a number that we've looked at, says something like numbers are mental constructs or they're things in our minds. And then the third answer we've been thinking about says that numbers are somehow in the concrete spatio-temporal world. Maybe they're physical things even, uh, but they're things we directly experience in the same way we experience chairs and tables. And What would that answer look like? I mean, would it be the number two is the set of all things of which there are two? Or, yeah, how does that answer work exactly? Like so much in philosophy, the devil's in the details, right? It's one thing to think you just get numbers from the world uh, by seeing pairs of things in the world, and then you're home free. The difficult part is coming up with a theory that can really make sense of how that is to work. One thing to notice here is that those who want to make the epistemological problem easier by locating numbers in the world in some way make knowledge of numbers very much like my knowledge that there's a cup on the table here. Whereas from the get-go, from Plato and before Plato, there was a sense that mathematical knowledge was quite special, that we actually do know it in a different way. I said earlier that somebody who's committed to the idea that numbers are abstract objects is stuck with having to give an account of how we have knowledge of them, and that Plato and others following Plato have resorted to talk of perception, but of course perception is like my perception of the cup, so it's just a metaphor, and they've had trouble spelling out the metaphor. Do we have a special faculty of perception that allows us to know things? And Plato's answer was yes, and that was the answer of other people as well. One of the nice features of sort of biting that bullet is that it makes mathematical knowledge special in a way that it does seem to be special. So mathematical knowledge does not seem to be dependent on the way the world happens to be. So mathematical knowledge also comes with what seems to be a necessity that it be true. It isn't just that 3 plus 5 uh, equals 8 happens to be true in the way it can be that it happens to be the case that I have there's two cups next to me on the table right now. But it seems like it must be the case. There's a force of necessity there. And it's also the case that mathematical knowledge, if you think through things carefully, has a level of certainty that comes with it that has made a deep impression on people. In fact, it made such a deep impression that it shaped all of philosophy. Mathematics provides a paradigm of the best kind of knowledge we seem to be capable of. It makes us want to know everything, or as much as possible, with that same level of certainty. So this is a very interesting feature of mathematical knowledge, and it was Again, I want to emphasize, deeply influential in the history of philosophy. There's a special kind of knowledge. Now, go back to where we were. If you're going to explain mathematical knowledge as being based on the things that we experience in the world, you're making mathematical knowledge very much like my knowledge of the cup on the table. And it's no longer clear how you could explain, for example, that my knowledge that 2 plus 3 equals 5 is actually a knowledge of a necessary truth. Right? How would you get that from experience by seeing apples when you were a child or something? There seems to be something very special here. The justification of mathematical knowledge does not seem to be dependent on experience. It seems to, that the propositions of mathematics are necessary, and it seems that we can be more certain of mathematical claims than a lot or most or all claims uh, that we get through our senses about the world. 
So that's already an issue that's on the table once you take this route. John Stuart Mill is one of the most famous proponents of the idea that you don't need to have any kind of special faculty of knowledge to have mathematical knowledge. You get it as a child by seeing that two apples together with three apples equals five apples. John Stuart Mill then has the problem of explaining why mathematical knowledge seems to be knowledge of necessity. And his claim is that you're not having insight into a necessary truth. It's just that you experienced things coming together in groups in that way with such incredible consistency that it feels necessary to you. But really, it's of the status of a claim like there are two cups on the table right now. But that's actually a challenge for the whole approach. You're going to have to explain the apparent necessity of mathematical claims in a way that seems convincing. Another challenge is really to get an explanation of how we get from seeing two cups on the table to the number two in a way that doesn't already presuppose the number two, right? It's very easy to say that you could see two cups on the table and then think of the two-ness or something like that. It's not so clear that you could really do that unless you already had the concept of two to bring to the table, both figuratively and literally in this case, right? So you have to be very careful of how you describe how, if you're being a strict empiricist and thinking that all your knowledge comes from the world, how this account is supposed to work. Now, one thing you might say is, well, there's this two-ness of the cups here, and there's a two-ness of the glasses on the table, the sunglasses and the reading glasses. And then there's what those two groups have in common. And now you're abstracting out a representation. A common way of thinking about that is that I'm seeing the set of two here and the set of two here. But now we have to be very careful because you remember that the whole point of this exercise was that you were in perceptual contact with two things here and two things there. But we've already made a shift to talking about the set of two here and the set of two here. Why is that problematic? On most accounts, a set is an abstract object. Every bit as abstract as the numbers that we were trying to explain in the first place. So the lesson of this is once you start digging into it, giving an account of how we know mathematical truths based on experience doesn't seem to be as straightforward as you might have at first thought. You have to account for the necessity, the apparent independence of justification on particular uh, sense experiences, and you can't, so to speak, cheat and import abstract concepts when you're giving an account of how we get the number concepts themselves. That makes the project interesting. Difficult, but interesting. It isn't fatal to it. And in fact, there are proponents of all three positions that I described earlier. I should say, though, about this view that numbers are somehow manifested or physical in the world and exist in the world. I've given the example of collections of things in the world and talked about John Stuart Mill. But in fairness, I should say that there's a much more sophisticated version of this view that developed at the uh, beginning of the last century called formalism. And formalism attempted to account for mathematical knowledge by interpreting it as rules for the manipulation of physical symbols on a piece of paper. That gives formalism more resources than the view we were talking about earlier with respect to John Stuart Mill. But it is important to see that some of the motivations and the, so to speak, location and the classification of possible responses to the dilemma of mathematical knowledge and the status of mathematical objects is in that camp still.
another influential approach to the question, how do we come to know facts about numbers and how do we come to have knowledge of arithmetic is to say that we uh, have knowledge of numbers in whatever way it is that we have knowledge of logic, of what implies what, of what follows from what. And this school of thought has been given a name, logicism. So how does the logicist view work exactly? Well, that's a, a very good question, an important historical development that did impact, deeply impact our views on the nature of mathematics, both the nature of mathematical objects and our knowledge of it. So, as you're pointing out, logicism was a project that began at the end of the 19th century to show that mathematics is really nothing more than logic. Now, one could have various motivations for doing this, but I could just say quickly that if you were worried about abstract objects, and it turned out that mathematical knowledge was just logical knowledge of a special form, you might feel better about the status of mathematics because logic does not appear to assert the existence of objects. Also, if you are concerned about the nature of mathematical knowledge, insofar as you're interested in how it can be justified, and it turned out that mathematics really was based on logic, then the justification of mathematical truths would just rest on logic. Now, in a certain way, that just pushes everything back to logic, but it would tell you something very interesting about mathematics, and it would tell you something very interesting about logic. Namely, you can get mathematics out of logic, and mathematics is nothing more than logic, and so on. This raises a host of issues, even if logicism were successful. However, logicism was only partially successful, in the sense that if the project was to show that mathematics is nothing but logic, that was not a successful project. What was shown was that mathematics is something that you can obtain from logic plus set theory. Now, recall that a few moments ago I was pointing out that sets are abstract objects. So you might have all the same worries and concerns that you had before logicism was on the table. And in fact, the introduction of set theory really throws a twist into the whole logicist project for more than one reason. First of all, set theory itself has developed into its own field, but set theory appears to be committed to an awful lot of abstract objects because you can build sets out of sets and so on and so forth. Or anywhere there is a set, you might think there's a set of those sets. And very quickly, you get beyond uncountably many sets and way beyond that as well. So suddenly, what looked like a very neat uh, reduction of mathematics to logic seems to depend on something that is immensely rich, powerful, and clogs the universe with infinite numbers of sets that a lot of people aren't too comfortable with. So what looked like a, a nice streamlined reduction of mathematics to logic turns out to involve set theory, which comes with its own commitments, its own theory, and a tremendous number of abstract objects all on its own. One thing that is important to understand is that logicism arose at the end of the 19th century after a period in which mathematics was arithmetized. What do we mean by that? Prior to the 19th century, there was the study of geometry and then the study of mathematics more generally. And 
there wasn't a unified account of mathematics. Also, very importantly, mathematical proofs and mathematical methods appeared to rely on intuition taken in a very broad sense. That is to say, geometrical proofs seem to require that you do constructions and that you have some sort of insight. Again, I'm using intuition in a very broad sense here. Mathematics hadn't achieved all of the rigor that it has today. Yet there was a push for rigor, in particular in the foundations of calculus, and that kept pushing mathematicians to think more and more rigorously about mathematics, to try to distinguish good proofs from bad proofs, and that motivated a lot of mathematicians to try to get rid of any kind of apparent appeal to intuition and have as strict as possible proofs. All of that pushed toward what was called the arithmetization of mathematics, in which you have a theory of numbers that begins with the natural numbers, and then you explain how to, so to speak, build rational numbers or account for rational numbers in terms of the natural numbers. Uh, Then you extend also to negative numbers and so on. Once you do that, you have now made it possible to try to think of geometry as simply an application of mathematics. And that gives a priority to numbers, and the natural numbers in particular, over all other branches of mathematics, geometry included. That is what I mean by the arithmetization of mathematics. There was a big drive, as I said, to get rid of any appeal to intuition in this broad sense and to reduce everything to logically rigorous proofs. A lot of that was not formally articulated until the end of the 19th century, when a philosopher named Gottlob Frege developed symbolic logic of a form that we know it today. It was subsequent to the arithmetization of mathematics that certain philosophers and mathematicians, such as Frege, started thinking about what lay at the foundation of the natural numbers themselves and led them to the logicist thesis. The point is that logicism could be seen as part of this long path of getting rid of any reference to intuition at all in mathematics. And if you think that logic is simply a matter of conceptual knowledge, you have given an account of mathematical knowledge that does away with any kind of intuition or anything that could give you uh, false results That was the ideal that was appealed to here. Given that logicism wasn't successful, given that it depends explicitly on set theory, that gave a lot of philosophers of mathematics pause about the logicist project and how we know mathematical truths after all. Is our mathematical knowledge really just logical knowledge based on concepts, or does it go beyond it in ways that depend on more than conceptual representation? Now, even independently about logicism, but in particular because of some of the difficulties that it faced, there were philosophers of mathematics who thought that there must be some role for intuition in mathematics. Again, intuition understood in a broad sense. And Henri Poincaré was a famous example of this. He thought that mathematics required some sort of mathematical intuition. Those who are inclined to agree with Poincaré in one form or another often look back to Kant because Kant had insisted that our mathematical knowledge was not simply conceptual, but required also intuition. Now, what's important to understand here is that when Kant said intuition, he wasn't just talking about some quasi-perceptual insight into facts or something like that. 
he had a very precise notion of intuition that contrasted with concepts. Both concepts and intuitions are kinds of representation that we have. Conceptual representation is distinguished from intuitive uh, representation in that the latter has a, what I will call, a quasi-perceptual format. That is to say, it's not the kind of thing that you think paradigmatically fits into the form of a sentence, where you break things down into subject and predicate and make a simple assertion, like the cat is on the mat. To give an example of what Kant had in mind, an intuition is like a spatial representation in which you have the representation of parts next to each other located in space. And that's a very different kind of representation than a concept. Kant claimed that all knowledge requires both concepts and intuitions to work together. Those who recognized the limitations of logicism or were in fact opposed to logicism look back to Kant to understand why he thought intuition was required in mathematical cognition and mathematical knowledge. Now, I said that Kant says that intuitions are quasi-perceptual. The reason I say quasi-perceptual is that he doesn't think that they are perceptual in the way that most perception is empirical, the way things, my perception of the cup on the table is empirical. Rather, Kant wanted to allow that some kinds of quasi-perceptual representation are pure and a priori. Notice that this would make mathematical knowledge very special and different from my knowledge of the cup on the table. But at the same time, it has something in common with it because it has some of the features of perception, the way spatial representations are perceptually represented, for example. The big question then was, for those who are looking back in Kant and are interested in getting at the bottom of Kant's views is, how does intuition play into our mathematical knowledge in the sense of intuition that Kant is interested in? So there is still a very live question today, 200 years after Kant, about what is the nature of mathematical cognition, where the form of the question is, what sorts of concepts or quasi-perceptual representations are presupposed by mathematical knowledge? And that means that Kant's views are still of very much of interest today, because even though mathematics has developed tremendously since Kant's time, we still do not have a clear theory about how we have mathematical knowledge. Daniel Sutherland, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago, dot edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. 